Anybody like jet lag? Yeah, no, nobody likes jet lag, do you? Anybody have a good jet lag cure? Water. I've tried that. I'm not so sure, so <laughs> stay on the ground. Maybe lots of water. I don't know. Well, I, I've traveled quite a bit over the years, and uh, I remember traveling to Thailand, working with our, our uh, missionary friends over there, the wards, and we were getting ready to send some church planters out into Myanmar. And it was really interesting because uh, I would, I would um, like, FaceTime with my kids and my wife every morning and every evening, right? And so I would call right after I got up, and it's like a 13-hour difference. And so as I'm getting up and getting ready for the day, they're getting ready for, to go to bed. And it's just so interesting, like, having this conversation because it feels so strange to be like, hey, pray, you know, I, we pray for them every night and, and like, pray, pray for your kids for a good night's sleep and that God will bless them, you know, and all that. Uh, as they're going to bed and you're ramping up for the day, you're on a different schedule, right? They're getting ready to go to sleep. They're going to sleep, and I'm up for the day. Or I remember traveling to another time zone about three or four hours earlier, and as you adjust to it, at first you kind of, you're waking up at like three in the morning, right? And then as you adjust to it, um, you're sleeping in, and it's nice. And then I remember getting a phone call, because church is happening here. This is when we first started the church, and, and I still had, you know, we didn't have such a, a good team. And uh, I get a phone call because something's not working on stage, right? You know, and it's three in the morning, and I'm like, ah, oh, you got to be kidding me. I'm on vacation here. And I'm all grumpy, and I'm all groggy. But over here, life is happening. Stuff is happening. Stuff is going on, Right. And I think that's the interesting thing about time zones, isn't it? Depending on where you are. And today, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see an interaction of Jesus with a group of people who are really stuck in a different time zone or a different reality. And consequently, they, they miss out on the very thing that God is actively doing in their midst. And I think if we pay attention here, um, it'll help us to be aware and be engaged in what God wants to do in and through us. So if you have your Bibles, you can start turning on over to uh, John chapter 5. And um, we're looking at, we're continuing this account in the life of Jesus in our series. And last week we saw this um, incredible account of, of this paralytic that Jesus heals at the pool of Bethesda. And what we saw at this place, um, it was... Uh, it's an amazing apologetic because for, for years and years and years, scholars didn't think this place existed, right? And then they discover it. And what we said last week is um, if there's arguments, you know, about you can't trust the Bible, just uh, so many times the answer is they just haven't found it yet. And what we've seen time and time again is you just wait a little while and lo and behold, their archaeology shows um, you know, what it says in the Bible is actually true. But anyway, you've got this guy, this man, who's been paralyzed for 38 years. And you see Jesus move in compassion for this man. And he asks him this really interesting question. I mean, you imagine this guy who's been in this, this condition in the first century as hard as it is today for someone who's paralyzed um, in the first century being completely dependent on others to carry you around, um, his hands all torn up from dragging himself around on, on rocks and cement. And Jesus is moved with compassion towards this man. And he asks him, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? And then he goes on and he heals him. And he tells him, hey, pick up your mat 
and walk. And there was an interesting conversation there. If you missed it, you can go back and catch up on our podcast or on our uh, YouTube channel. Around that idea of, do you really want to get well, or are you going to stay in blame? And anyway, Jesus heals him, right? And it's a spectacular thing. Imagine the guy, and he picks up his mat, and he carries it out, and he walks out. And as incredible as that account is that we looked at last week, it wasn't actually the primary point of the passage. I told you you had to come back this week so we can start getting to, the, to the, what Jesus is doing here. And the rest of the chapter, actually, as John records this and as, as John writes this, it's going to be kind of in the format of a trial. And so you're going to see this, um, this whole chapter. It's very theological. And we're going to take the next, this week and next week to really dig into this passage. And it's very theological, so kind of put on your thinking caps. There's a lot of theology about Jesus in here. And we get to, in the second half of John chapter 9, or 5, verse 9, rather, um, the main point here of what Jesus is getting to. It says this. So right after Jesus tells this guy, now pick up your mat and walk, and the spectacular healing happens, it says this. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And everybody, if you like, if there's a soundtrack, this is where the soundtrack like goes, wah, 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 right? And everybody knows, uh-oh, we're queuing up for, 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 a, for, for conflict here, right? And it says this, and so the Jewish leaders said to the man who'd been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. And so they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? And it says the man who was healed had no idea who Jesus was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. So Jesus does this amazing miracle, heals this guy, and just like sneaks out the back. I love it. And so they're grilling him. They're asking him, like, first they get on him, and he's like, whoa, whoa, not my fault, right? He says, I'm just doing what I was told by the guy who healed me. I mean, talk about missing the point here, right? These guys, there's, there's not any like, wait a minute, isn't this the dude that's been sitting here for, 30, for years? He's been paralyzed for 38 years. And these guys are like, actually, we're going to need to look into the legality of this, you know? What are you doing here? Totally missed the point. Like, no celebration, no, like, amazement and wonder that this man has been healed miraculously. They're just nitpicking. Now, goes on. I'll, we'll get there in a second, but. And goes on to say later, Jesus found him, the man at the temple, and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. And let me just say um, regarding this, there, there's, there's a deeper healing that Jesus wants to do in this guy, right? Because like we said last week, everybody that Jesus heals, they go on to die later. Like, in, unless Jesus returns, you, we, we don't get out of this life alive. That's all of us, Right? And so there's a deeper eternal reality. Jesus wants to encounter this guy and see him rescued and delivered and healed eternally. 
And then also, um, something here is Scripture does indicate, and we see it in 1 Corinthians 11, that there are times when, when sin causes specific ailments. And, and we kind of get the feeling here that maybe that was the case that happened. We see the same thing in Mark chapter 2. But Jesus makes it very clear that somebody being in a, um, in a desperate situation or suffering from, from sickness, it, it doesn't mean somebody sinned. In fact, we're going to see that in John chapter 9. The guys are like, man, this guy's got it rough. Who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus is like, nobody. Wasn't, that wasn't the deal at all. In fact, this, this situation happened in order that God's glory might be shown. We see that in, in Luke chapter 13. And see, suffering is, is not an index of a person's sin. This is a very important point. When it comes to somebody that's suffering, it doesn't mean that, that they did something wrong to cause this, right? We, we, we kind of know that. But I think in our culture, and, and specifically in the culture of this day, they had an idea that was much more like karma than grace. That bad things happen to you, it must be because of something bad that you did. And see, I still think there's something in us um, in the trappings of religion and in our history and in our psyche that believes this. That because something bad happened to you, and it's because we know there's many times when, when hardship in life or, or tragic circumstances are a result of, of terrible choices in life, right? We know that. But there's a big difference between karma and grace, and as they're thinking in, in, in the first century here, as they look at this paralytic, they're thinking, man, he must have blown it. He must have done something. And then Jesus moves towards him with grace. He picks him out of this crowd, finds out he's been suffering this way for 38 years and heals him. He does nothing to deserve it at this point, right? In fact, what we see actually... Um, very likely from the story is he may have, in this occasion, he may have done something actually that caused him to be in this condition. And grace is, you don't deserve something. It's called, it's unmerited favor. Religion is, you work hard to get, to earn your way to favor with God. And if you're good enough, and if you work hard enough, God will maybe be pleased enough with you that, you know, you'll get into heaven. Or he'll bless you in life and you'll have good things. Grace is, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet, he demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so, verse 15 says, The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. And so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. And when you look at this idea that Jesus was doing these things, when you look at the, the Greek, what it really connotates is Jesus had a habit of doing things like this. This was a regular occurrence for Jesus. And, and these guys, they are... It's just they begin persecuting Jesus because he's breaking their rules. 
Now, the Sabbath, if you don't know about the Sabbath, Jesus says somewhere else, hey, the Sabbath was created for man. The Sabbath is based on the fact that, that in Genesis, we're told that God created the world in six days and on the seventh, he rested. So God models the principle of Sabbath for us, right? As God rests. And so as Israel, early Israel is formed, um, they, uh, this is something built into their culture that you work six days and you rest one day. But something had happened in this culture where they began to make the Sabbath not the blessing that God intended it to be to his people, where actually like you pause and you take a breath and you connect as a family and you quit always trying to, you know, get the next rung up the ladder. That, that was the heart of the Sabbath. Is there be a time when you'd pause and remember that everything you have comes from God? That it's not all dependent on you working, working, working nonstop. And, and remember, this was instituted to a nation. And we looked at this in Exodus, a nation that came out of slavery. And all they knew was work, 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 being driven to exhaustion just to survive. And God tells them, come on out. And as he provides manna for them in the desert, he says, I'm going to provide for you for and you're going to gather for six days. And then if you gather too much on any of those days, it's going to spoil. But on the sixth day, you're going to gather twice as much. And it's going to miraculously last for the extra day. And you'll have provision on the Sabbath too. And I think something that I've seen in so many people's lives is when this gets out of whack and when you begin to just always be striving and always be going and never stop and pause and take a break, bad things happen. Burnout happens. Life doesn't go well, right? And, and God knows this. He's designed us for rest. And so there's a beautiful principle in this for humanity. And yet they had, they had turned it into what was supposed to be a blessing. They had turned it into um, a hardship. Because they developed uh, 39 different categories of different things. In, in the Mishnah, it was called. Uh, they developed 39 different categories of rules that you had to keep regarding the Sabbath. Something like 1,500 rules and regulations. And somewhere along there, picking up your mat and walking became one of those. And apparently also, uh, healing, even though all Jesus did was speak the word, and heal him. Uh, Jesus got in trouble for that all the time, too. Because it was the Sabbath, right? And so the point is, they made the Sabbath a burden. And Jesus knows all the rules that they had around this. And Jesus goes right after him and breaks one of their rules. In fact, I mean, this is intentional. He could have, he didn't have to heal this guy on the Sabbath. He could have come the day before, the day after. Just not tick these guys off, right? No, it's intentional. And then after he heals them, he could have said, hey, why don't you sneak out the back and come circle back around tomorrow and get your mat? No, he's like, hey, uh, pick up your mat, take it out and walk. It's intentional. He's setting this up. Now, one of the reasons why Jesus is doing this, and in fact, the way this is structured in John, and this is where it gets theological, but over the next several chapters, chapters 5 to 11, Jesus is going to deal with many of the festivals of Judaism, and he's going to show the true heart and intent of God and how God is doing a new thing in those. And 
one of the festival that sort of supports all the rest of them that they celebrate weekly was the Sabbath. And so Jesus is doing this very intentional thing in here when it comes to the Sabbath. And what he's showing is, guys, there's a new reality that's operational here. You are, you are operating under bad information. There's something new. God is doing something new. And you're acting like you're still living in the past. You're in a different time zone. I had uh, the other night last week, um, my, we have a cat. You know the cat. I talk about the cat. It's sort of the outdoor cat that was cuddled up on me all night. Anyway, <laughs> that cat, that outdoor cat. So, yeah, I wasn't outside either. <laughs> I wasn't outside. Um, but the cat gets out, and then the cat goes out, and it, and it gets dark. And the cat's out. It's a full moon, right? And uh, earlier this week. And then we hear, my kids hear a pack of coyotes, because we live kind of out, like right behind the house. And they're freaking out. And I'm in there working on painting and painting a bathroom because my house flooded. But I'm painting a bathroom, and uh, they're freaking out. My daughter's just sobbing. It was really heartbreaking, actually. And so I go out because, you know, good dad, right, hopefully. Um, I did wait a little bit, but I went out. I got the really <laughs> – oh, I'm so sorry, honey. Um, anyway – I got the really super bright, like, LED flashlight that blinds everything. And I go out, and I look, and they'd already been out two or three times. And I went down, and I went towards the neighbor's house, and there I see these two little eyes coming towards me, right? Well, meanwhile, she's up in the house still crying. And I get to, like, we get to walk in carrying, like, as we're walking in carrying this cat, she's still operating on a whole different set of assumptions that aren't true, Right? It's like a different time zone. Like she's just operating under information that isn't true anymore. And this is what Jesus is doing with these Pharisees. Oh, by the way, I was the hero. It was kind of fun, yeah. <laughs> just walk in. She was so happy. So, and I still have a cat on my bed. <laughs> but these, these religious leaders are operating under a set of assumptions of how God is and who God is. You see, something happened hundreds of years behind, before this. The people of Israel were exiled because they did a lousy job at keeping God's law. Uh, uh, they went after idols and false gods and, and sacrificed children on altars to false gods and all these different things that broke the heart of God. And God did what he promised them 1,500 years before that, or about a, actually about 1,000 years before that, which was, if you do this, I'm going to bring you into exile. And so the people of Israel were exiled and they knew it was because they had abandoned their God. And so when they, when the faithful remnant got back to the land, there were a whole bunch of, uh, well, a small number of them actually came back to the land, but they said, we're going to have to be really, really, really careful to keep the law of God. And if we can keep it just right, it'll pave the way, you know, God will be happy with us. The Messiah will come if we can just keep it just right. And so like on the Sabbath, they put all these rules on just the handful that God had in the scriptures regarding the Sabbath. They made it hard and a burden. And see, this is what religion versus relationship with God does. 
religion makes you work really, really hard and never actually know if you have favor with God. Religious, religion gives you idea, the idea that God actually must have a heart of judgment towards you, that that must be the heart of God. That's not the heart of God. He wants relationship with his people. And Jesus here is showing something as he comes in and he breaks this, this petty rule that they had. He's showing a new day has arrived. God is on the scene and God is doing something new. And you guys are still, you're missing it. You can't see it. You're still operating under old, outdated information. You overcorrected, right? They overcorrect, which is also what religion does is, is builds. See, we as people have a very hard time. There's a book called The Quest for the Radical Middle, and it's a theological book um, about sort of the, the association of churches we're involved in. And we, we as human beings have a very hard time functioning in grace or law. We, we usually go to license, which is everything goes. There's not really any rules. Kind of do whatever you want, right? Or we go towards locking it down and very little grace. We have a very hard time walking in the grace of God and understanding that and yet staying faithful to him, which is why Jesus is so remarkable. Like John says, he's full of grace and truth. He's always, he, he's always graceful like this guy, and yet he, he speaks the truth to him. Hey, you need to stop sinning. He didn't pull any punches, right? See, they're operating under the old reality, under the kind of the karma idea. And they begin to persecute Jesus because of this, because they're operating in this different space. And it says to them, and this is where John gets into this uh, kind of d- trial, which models sort of what you see in a first century trial. It says, in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. And see, here's the interesting thing as you go back and read some of these ancient um, Hebrew writings and commentaries on the scriptures. They had this idea that God, who worked, you know, in in creation and then rested, they had the idea that God is still working. I mean, he's holding the universe together, right? Fundamentally, when you break down and get into like tiny particles and subparticles and all of these things, um, what scientists kind of figure out is the more they study is we don't really know what holds it all together. The scriptures tells us it's God that holds it all together. And, and there's, this, there's this sense that as you breathe in and you breathe out, that very breath is because God is at work holding the universe together. That he, he never, we're told he never slumbers or sleeps. Aren't you glad? That he cares for you? That he knows your name? That he's not off some distant place? You remember Eli- um, the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament taunting the prophets of Baal? Because they're trying to call out to your God. He's like, hey, maybe he's asleep. Yell louder. Hey, maybe, maybe he's on the toilet. Tell him to hurry up. I made that up. Um, well, not the toilet part, actually. 
And then Elijah comes out and he prays and whoop, fire comes down from heaven. No antics, no slashing himself like all these other prophets, right? The point is God is attentive. He's there. He knows your name. Jesus says he knows the number of hairs on your head that he cares for you. He, he wants you to pray and seek him and bring, present your request to him, and yet he knows your, your needs before you ever bring them up. It's the heart of God. That's who God is. But he says, my father's always working. And they understood, in a sense, the rabbis at the time understood that God is always working. And so Jesus does this thing. He says, well, my father's working, and I'm working. In other words, um, I wrote the rules. I can tweak them a little bit. Any parents done that? Yeah, you have. (laughs) I'm just like, you know, your kid comes in and you're doing, you know, you're eating out of the, drinking out of the carton of milk or you're, (laughs) you're eating, you know, the whole bag of chips that they can't have any of. This is my house. It's just my house. Okay. And they're like, hey, wait a minute. I got busted eating a whole bowl of chocolate chips when I was, when my kid was little, right? He's like, hey, wait a minute, dad. It's like, I made the rule. If you made the rule, you can mess with the rule, right? We've, that's how we live, isn't it? And, and Jesus here, basically, he says, hey, my father's working. God's not taking a break here. In fact, God went to work to redeem humanity after the fall of humankind. This is the idea you see in Scripture. God went to work to rescue us, and he hasn't stopped. He went to work until Jesus, through Jesus coming and living and dying and rising again. And then as he empowers us in his Holy Spirit to go out into this world and reach people with that good message, right? He's at work. He's at work. And meanwhile, they're stuck in a different time zone. They don't get it. It's like your teenager that you're just trying to get out of bed. It's funny because you know how you like you're like I'm not going to be my parent, and then you grow up. My parents, I would sleep in, and they would come in if I. You know, because I would just ignore them and lay in bed, and then they come in with water and dump some water on, and you're like, ah, right? And so now I have an almost teenager, (laughs) and I'm like, I'm just like my parents. (laughs) Get the squirt bottle. Where's the squirt bottle? (laughs) Hey, kid, get up. You're going to ignore your mom for another three times? Okay, you're going to get up. You're going to get up, right? Stuck, still sleeping when they're supposed to be awake. And Jesus is like, hey, God is working and you're missing it. You're missing the point. God's working here. He's doing something. And you are so stuck in the minutiae and so stuck in your petty rules and so stuck that you've lost the heart of God. You're stuck in dead religion. You've lost the heart of God. God's working. I'm working. What's God doing? You should be paying attention here. But instead, you you don't give a rip that this guy 
has been healed from a 38-year condition and has his life back. He has his life back. You don't care. You don't care. You're still asleep. You're not awake. Verse 18 says this, For this reason they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Again, the tense of the Greek verb here tells us it's present perfect tense. It means Jesus was continually making himself equal with God. And see, this is something you have to wrestle with. We're going to see this over and over and over again in in the book of John. One scholar um, named John Corson, he says this, he says, regardless of what Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, or the way international declare, the fact is those who heard Jesus knew he was claiming deity. That's why they were out to kill him. So there's, there's groups of people that, and it's kind of the popular cultural idea in, in, our, in our culture too, is that, well, Jesus was a good moral teacher. Jesus um, maybe had a form of divinity. You see, that wasn't actually that revolutionary in the day. In the Roman culture, there were all sorts of different gods and goddesses. You go to, uh, go to Hinduism, or not to Hinduism, Hinduism, which is in India and a lot of the, uh, you know, Southeast Asia, lots of gods and goddesses, right? Thousands upon thousands. So that's not necessarily all that uh, new age teaching. We're, God is, we're, we're all God, right? That's new age teaching. That's not all that revolutionary, but what Jesus is claiming in the book of John, when it says at the beginning of the book of John, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God that through him all things were created, where we begin to see this doctrine of the Trinity that when we looked at in April, when we looked at John chapter 1, we took a few weeks and dug into this in great detail. What we saw is this is a concept from, from Judaism that they, they understood this was back and Jesus is bringing it out. They had studied this. But Jesus makes himself equal with God. In fact, verse 23 um, is going to tell us that God's purpose is that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And here's, here's something common in, in all false religion. Um, it's common in actually pretty much all the world religions except for the Christian faith is that they minimize the claims of Jesus and who Jesus cho- chose to be. It's something actually that the popular version of Jesus in our culture minimizes as well. That Jesus is my friend. Jesus is a good teacher. Um, You know, if you go to Latin America, Jesus was a revolutionary that looked a lot like Shea. Um, But all these different concepts of Jesus, and yet he's not God. I mean, even Islam venerates Jesus as a prophet. You know, I I use a quote all the time. I won't quote the whole thing today, but C.S. Lewis in his famous quote where he says, Jesus um, doesn't actually leave you that option. As you dig into the claims of Jesus, and we see him here in John 5. We've seen him all the way along already. He doesn't leave you the option of just saying, well, he was just a good moral teacher. Lewis says, no, he was either a liar, he was a lunatic, or you better worship him as Lord. Because somebody who made the claims that Jesus makes 
wouldn't be a good man. He would either, either just be totally crazy, out of his mind, or he'd be evil. He'd be a, he'd be a liar. And see, this is one of the primary statements in our faith is that Jesus came, that, that God came in the flesh. Paul tells us that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Remember that from Colossians, if you've been with us a number of years. That in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Remember when the angel announces the birth of Jesus? What did he say? His name will be Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And see, this was the hope of Jewish people in the first century was that all these Jewish kings had failed, but maybe God could come himself and move in our midst. And the mystery of the gospel is that Jesus came actually in, in bodily form to redeem his people, but not just those with a physical heritage that goes back to Abraham, but people from all tongues, tribes, languages, nations, that they can have life in him. That God came in the flesh. This is at the heart of our faith. This is something you have to wrestle with. Because if you don't, here, here's what happens. If, if Jesus is just a good moral teacher, you can kind of pick and choose what you want to follow from him, right? If he's just a good moral teacher, if he's, you know, if we... For some of you want to compare him to the prophet Muhammad, you kind of pick and choose which, which sayings you, you're going to do, and eh, we'll leave kind of that aside. That's a little weird and outdated, right? But if Jesus is who he claims to be, God himself come in the flesh, that God took on flesh. That's the meaning of incarnation. That God took on flesh. That he, he came, he, he came in the likeness of a human being. Um, Paul said he'd emptied himself, not meaning that he emptied himself as, of his attributes as God, but that he took on the form. He emptied himself of the status and the privileges, and even the, he came from heaven to live on earth, to come as a baby. He had a poopy diaper. <laughs> I mean, you think about that humility, right? That he became a servant, it says. Why does Paul tell us that? Because that's our, our, it's our model. That's who we are to model our life after. It says this, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only, he can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will all be amazed. And the idea here... And we've lost sight of this in our culture, but in, they, they would understand this in, in this time of history and really up until the last maybe 100, 200 years. Basically, somebody grew up and they entered into the trade of their father. 
A young man would grow up and he would be apprenticed by his father and he would study his father and he would work with his father alongside him and eventually the business would become his. And he would learn how to do it just the way his father did as a representative of the father. And that's the idea of apprenticeship. And this is what Jesus is saying is, hey, I I can do nothing by myself. In other words, I am here under the authority of the Father. I have submitted my life to the perfect will of the Father. I'm not here to do this thing on my own. Remember, when Satan tempted Jesus, if you remember that from Matthew and from Luke, um, in the temptation, it was always to take things into his own hands and do it his own way, to shortcut the plan and the process of God, right? Turn Turn these stones into bread. You're hungry. You're God. No problem for you. Not going to do that. He quotes the Bible back to him. Man shall not live by bread alone. I'm here to do the will of my father, not to circumvent it and do, do my own thing. I've come in submission to the father, the heart of the father, right? In fact, you want to know what I do? What I see my father doing. That's what I do, just like in a pertinence. Here, let me show you how to do this, and then do, you do it. My job is to express the heart of the Father into the world. And see, Jesus tells us, he tells us to pray to God as our gracious Heavenly Father. And I know that's hard for some of you because you've had a, a poor example of a father. But as your perfect heavenly father, who loves you, who knows you. And Jesus says, my job here is to do the will of my father. The scholar D.A. Carson says, the father initiates, sends, commands, commissions, grants. The son responds, obeys, performs his father's will and then receives authority. See, God is working in a new way. This is what Jesus is saying. New creation is bursting in. God is working in a new way. The kingdom of God is in your midst. God is initiating. God is working. The age of grace has arrived. The heart of the Father is for you. His love is for you. He loves you. And this is what Jesus is communicating. I do what I see my father doing. I do what I see my father doing. I have a question for you here. Are you aware of what the father is doing? I don't believe you can, you can truly live a life on a daily basis where you're engaged and aware of what the Father's doing in your life and through your life and in this world around you without being a person of prayer. Now, this doesn't mean you have to get up and pray for three hours before sunrise or anything, but it's a constant attitude, Right? There needs to be a prayerfulness in your life, an ongoing conversation, a listening to God. Are you doing that? Are you in his word? I don't think you can know the heart of the Father 
unless you, you see the revealed heart of the Father in his word. You know, Jesus reveals the heart of the Father to us. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I don't think you can know the heart of the Father unless you know Jesus. Unless you dig into who Jesus is. Unless you see his actions and his words. Are you aware of what the Father is doing? Are you like the religious leaders here? Like me as a teenager, just groggy and grumpy, like I've been awakened too soon, right? Functioning on a different time zone. You're asleep when God's awake and he's working. You're asleep in, are you asleep in this world where you're just so focused on everything here and now in the minutia of life and the stress and the hardships of life, which happen to all of us, that you've completely lost sight of God? What are you doing? What's your agenda? See, part of Jesus, when he says, I do what I see my father doing. And boy, you're going to see some great things. Why? Because the father loves the son. The perfect love, eternal love and community of the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit for all eternity. See, when John says God is love, for all eternity past, there was a perfect, unbroken love between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus knows the Father. And I find it interesting when it comes to what God is doing and being aware of it is from the accounts of Jesus' life that we have, it seems like Jesus really has to actually work to maintain oneness with the Father. As he comes in the flesh, have you noticed that all throughout the Gospels? He gets up early, he prays, he spends time with the Father, he withdraws from the busyness of life to be alone with his Father. It's intentional. And I would just say, if Jesus has to do that, how much more you and I, right? Where are you at? Are you aware of what the Father's doing? Is your life set towards pursuing his agenda for you? I'm going to invite up Winston and Susie. As we close, we're going to sing a song here in just a minute. I've observed something in, in many years of, of ministry and life is, is, is that the people who typically see God move powerfully are the people who passionately pursue his heart. That consistently, if you want to see God move, be in prayer. Be pursuing him. Are, are you aware of what the Father is doing? Are you aware of his goodness? Don't miss this account as, as we get into some of these theological deep things. That what the Father was doing on this day was sending his son in to go rescue this, this dude that's been a paralytic for 38 years. To move in compassion, to go to the least of these That's what he was doing. 
And the primary thing that God is doing in this world today is redeeming people through the love of Jesus Christ, through the message of the gospel as they put their faith and trust in him, as they encounter him. What place does that hold in your day-to-day awareness of, of your life, in your priority? When we started with that highlight, that value highlight, not just pastors, it's that every one of us is called to live life as full-time ministry in whatever sphere of life we're in. To wake up and go, what is the Father doing? To be in tune to the Holy Spirit so he can impress on us, hey, this is what the Father's doing. To recognize this conversation or this little hiccup or this um, delay in my schedule that put me in the path of this person is actually to wake up and go, oh, this is what you're doing, God. This This was the conversation you wanted me to have. When you feel that lump in the back of your throat because this, a conversation you're in with a coworker took a spiritual turn and you know I can either bring up Jesus or I can be silent. That's what the Father's doing. Why? Because he's good. Because he loves you. He loves them. And he wants to, to move in their life in grace. Would you stand? We're going to sing this little familiar song. And I encourage you, as you, as you think through this, just ask, would, would you do this as we sing this? Would you say, Father, would you show me this week what you're doing? And allow me to engage in that.